This morning's message is found in Psalm 56. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 56. The text will be verse 4, but we will stand in a moment and read verses 1 through 4 and then verses 10 and 11. Because of time, we're not going to take the entire psalm in reading. Would you stand, please? Psalm 56, beginning in verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day. For there are many who fight against me, O Most High. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you, in God. I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? Verse 10. In God, I will praise his word. In Yahweh, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Please be seated. This morning's message is entitled, Doubled Down Faith, and in parentheses, Trust Revived. The text is verse 4. In other words, it's the thrust of the message, and hopefully it is a message. It is what God is saying to his messenger. This is what I want delivered to my people in this local assembly this morning. In Psalm 56, again, to reread it in God. I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? Now, I referenced this verse Wednesday evening in our study through Samuel, where David is now the centerpiece of our consideration. And it left an impression on me, even in preparation time for Sunday's uh, message, and then after the message, it just stayed with me. And when it came time to decide, Lord, what do you want me to say to everyone? Um, This was the verse that he impressed upon me, and Uh, maybe because of the circumstances surrounding it and all that it has to offer to every Christian all the time. Um, This is a psalm that that set it up for us a little bit. It was not born in a studio, but in the valley of the shadow of death. That's where this psalm uh, started, of course, in, in the heart of God and into the life of his psalmist David. And David at this time was being hunted. His life was being put in jeopardy. Why? Because God blessed him. Not with men hunting him, but God had blessed him. And that brought the evil into the light where everyone could see it. I know those of you who have been going along with us on Wednesdays, you're, you're fresh with this, you're, you're up on it, but some of you are not. And so just to give us a little background, David, who was a shepherd and then found himself in a duel with the giant, and then he is, uh, of course, successful. He slays Goliath, and he is put in command of troops, and he is successful there, too. And uh, the people started singing his praises. And in First Samuel chapter 18... The women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And there, in the heart of King Saul, Satan took over. He was then demonically charged with a hatred towards this sweet psalmist of Israel, towards this shepherd. He went from shepherd to servant to fugitive. But God's hand was on his life. He still was a man after God's own heart. Saul was obsessed with killing David, all out of jealousy and self-love. And so Saul spent the rest of his life, which is probably another eight years or so, hunting for David to kill him. Already, David had penned, by the time he writes this psalm, which is connected to, and I'll get back to it in a moment, already he had written Psalm 59. That psalm also was not born in a studio. Not that there's something wrong with psalms or songs that are created in a peaceful environment, but 
this particular psalm as well as Psalm 59. Psalm 59, David wrote, after the assassins were unable to find and kill him. And so he sings his praises to God. And that's significant. I'll read verse 16 from Psalm 59. But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. For you have been my defense and refuge in the day of trouble. David is walking with the Lord at this time. And so he flees these assassins. He writes this psalm at some point, And he heads to God's house looking for refuge from this man who is stalking him, who is coming after him and using an army to do it nonetheless. And so he goes to the house of God and he asks for food. He is given food, but he also asks for weapons. And the only weapon there was Goliath's sword. And David misread that. He read an omen into that. He felt that this was God leading him to go to the enemy of God's people, the Philistines. Because Goliath, being a Philistine from Gath, is exactly where David was now going to go, thinking that this was somehow going to be a token of peace given to them. So he flees to the enemy for refuge. One evil man caused him to do that, Saul. Well, the moment he crossed the frontier and stepped onto the property of the Philistines, the promises and the will of God were fading for him. He was about to find that out. And uh, he had good reasons to run, but not into wrong hands, not into the hands of the world, into Achish. He was fleeing the hounds of Saul into the house of Achish, and then he's going to have to flee the house of Achish also. Something out of hell can push us into the enemy's tent for help when we can go other places instead. And we have to learn this and beware of this. He had to pretend madness to escape. In other words, David arrives in the King Achish tent, and someone realizes this is David, whom the women were singing, Saul has killed his thousands, David is ten thousands. Those ten thousands are our people, the Philistines. David realizes his life is in jeopardy. And he thinks quick. And he begins to act crazy. It's interesting that they don't kill David because he's acting crazy. But if he wasn't acting crazy, they would have killed him. (laughs) Something a little strange about that. But anyway, through madness, he escapes. And having survived that bad idea, having survived that mistake, he regroups in his faith and he doubles down in it now. He sort of gets his head together. Interesting, he's going to make this mistake again. And it's going to be a little worse next time. That's how life is. There are lessons all over the scriptures. Anyway, he survives. And so what does he do? He writes two songs to God about this experience. Psalm 34 and the psalm we're considering this morning. Psalm 56. At the writing of these three psalms. Psalm 59, when the assassins came for him. Psalm 34 and 56 when he survived being in the enemy's camp, his situation has not changed. In other words, he's writing scripture. He doesn't know it's scripture. He's writing songs to God. And God has not yet really taken him out of the trouble that he's in. He's writing these psalms, and his situation of trouble has not changed. How many lessons are in that for believers? I don't have to wait for God to rescue me, to worship him, to praise him, to love him, to try to obey him. His enemy is still out there, still after him. For David, it was King Saul. Again, Saul had already tried no less than 16 times already to kill him. He's going to continue to try to kill him. For us, maybe it's not King Saul. In fact, I'm sure it's not King Saul. (laughs) But it's something else. Something else is troubling you. Something else is threatening your life. Something else is coming after your faith. Trying to destroy you in some way, spiritually and physically alike. Satan, of course, is saying, I would like David dead, but I'd also like to strip him of his faith. That's really what I like. 
In fact, he can go on living if he doesn't have any faith. That plan backfired. And these psalms demonstrated. David will write no less than 11 songs, psalms under pressure. And, and who knows how many of the others were, too. Just some of them, we have the titles. Or we have the information given to us from the scripture. And so he learns a powerful lesson. And our text shouts the lesson out to us down through the centuries so that we would understand it. Again, verse 4, In God I will praise His word. In God I put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? This is the realization he had come to. Look at verse 10. In God I will praise His word. In Yahweh I will praise His word. Thrice repeated. Three times he says, thank you for your word. Thank you for talking to mankind. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you for instructing me in my life. Again, this is born in the valley of the shadow of death because that's where he is. Just because he escapes Achish and the assassins doesn't mean he's out of the valley. It was a prolonged misery. Unlike Paul, for example... Paul brought his misery on himself, serving the Lord. In fact, when Paul was called to ministry, God said, I have to show him anything he's going to suffer for me. And he went out and he did it. And he did it magnificently. David, on the other hand, at this point, has got no time to think of ministry. He's just trying to live. But he's ministering at the same time. Effortless ministry, you could say. Not in the strength of of his flesh. Oh, the flesh showed itself when he ran to Achish for help the two times that he did it. Uh, This is a critical message to we who believe to make us stronger believers in the face of fear and its uncertainty. Fear has that with it. Sometimes fear is certain. (laughs) You know that if, you know, that dog gets hold of you, it's going to be bad. Other times, you're not sure what's going to happen, but you know the things that are hovering, that are out there, they're harmful. Revelation chapter 3, Christ speaking to a faithful church. He says, I know your works. Look at that. Christ sees into the church because he's in the church. It's his. It's his body. He knows what he's connected to the body of Christ. It's amazing how many Negative things people have said about the church over the centuries. He continues in Revelation 3. See, I have set before you an open door. And no one can shut it. For you have a little strength. Have kept my word. And have not denied my name. You know there are groups out there calling themselves churches. And they have denied his name. And they're not keeping his word. And they have no interest in correcting themselves. Well, that's their business. What is our business? To keep the word of the Lord, to not deny his name, to look in the face of our oppressors and say, I serve the Lord Jesus Christ. David, that's what he does. He doubles down on his faith. He intensifies his faith. He corrects it. He understood, okay, that was a mistake. Let me fix this. And so he focuses on God. Without visible indications Of hope. What hope does he have? He has nowhere to go. He's going to end up living in a cave. I've never lived in a cave. I've seen inside of caves. I don't want to live in a cave. It's not something like, hey, we've got this duplex cave. You're going to love it. In fact, in Israel, in Judah, in the southern part of Israel, when you go out to the desert and you look at the caves, you can say, I don't want to go up there. (laughs) It's nice to see them from here. He had nowhere to turn. The tents of the wicked gave him no relief. What a lesson on human behavior for the righteous. The tents of the wicked will not help me. God will help me. And not till he found God Through God's word, did he enter into that path of strength in his faith yet again? 
I mean, not judging him at all. The decision to go to Achish, it, it was a trap. It was a setup. He, he fell for it. It was a very easy one. How many of us have, have not? Thinking God's leading me in this direction. It's not God at all. It's you. You've misread it. And so you recover from those things. And don't blame God. And almost every outward circumstance of his life at this time seemed to tell that God was not with him. But so long as he could recognize that, he was alive. And so God was with him. God's promises and his goodness and his love and his care, they are trustworthy. They were not suspended. David, David knew in his heart, still, Yahweh cared for him. And that's why he was willing to trust God. So much so, he was singing about it. Look, if you ever fell down, you don't feel like singing. It's the last thing you want to do is sing when you're feeling terrible. This man did it the other way. He defied his own moods. What would happen, what would happen if no one told our teens they could be depressed? What happens when someone comes along and says, you can be depressed? See the suggestions and seductions of Satan? What would happen if you had no time to be depressed? Adult or teen alike. What would happen if you were just too busy doing God's things to let depression get the upper hand? You have to understand, depression's a part of life. You're going to have those things. But what is part of the spirit? Beating them back. How do you beat them back? Perseverance. Endurance. Trusting the Lord and thanking Him for the Word. The Bible is teaching us. It's telling us. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. Whenever I am not afraid, I will trust in you. Whenever I am in a bad mood, I will fight to trust in you. Whenever I am in a good mood, I will fight to trust in you. It doesn't stop. It's in season and it's out of season. Psalm 56, verses 4 and 10, thrice repeated, are profound words. They're not by accident. They're not, well, you know, i got to fill the song with something. They're heartfelt. He was living this. This is the thing that's going to happen. David is pretty much alone. He's got a few men with him, not many, a handful not, a, you know, the, the bread in the temple had 12 loaves of bread. And that evidently was enough to take care of them. God is going to surround David with people who need ministry in their lives. Who need what he has to offer. He's going to bring them. Those who are in debt. Those who are in a state of discontentment with Saul. Those who are outcast. They're all going to come to David. Not all of them. About 600 of them. It's going to be quite remarkable. God never would have brought those men to David had David not been a man who learned to double down on his faith when he had no reason to do it that was visible. It's all invisible. We call that spiritual. He was spiritually in tune with the Lord and just rolling out the songs about it. Tents of the wicked gave no relief. Give me a teenager who desires to defy Satan, who desires to, to defy the world's logic and thinking when it comes to spiritual matters, who is interested in defying his own flesh. Give me an adult of any age who is willing to defy Satan, defy the world and their own flesh. No, you won't get 100% on this exam, but you can crush the exam just with that spirit of defiance. Exodus 32, verse 26. This is when the people who were called to be God's people decided they were going to worship other gods along with Yahweh. And they were going to use little statues to do it also. And then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on Yahweh's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. A rally call. And they rallied up. That's what God is still saying. 
Who is on the side of Jesus Christ in the church? Come to me. I get you for almost an hour every week if you come every week. What about the rest of those hours? Who gets you then? Is it Satan? Is it the world? Is it yourself? Is it the Spirit of God? A combination thereof. If you're walking with God, it's going to be a combination because the enemy will engage you. He will look for you. He will seek you to destroy you. And you, following the Lord, will be seeking the Lord to be used by the Lord to destroy the works of this enemy. It's always been this way. Satan targets you the rest of the week. And after this sermon, what happens next? It's up to you. So now we look at our text again. Verse 10. In God, I will praise his word. As I've emphasized, he repeats this three times. When the Spirit does that, especially in a short period of time, as in literature, as we have it presented to us, it is a big deal. It's not, oh, by the way, he just put that in. That's just part of the song to sing it again. No. The Psalms are written in such a way that they stand without music and without song. They stand by just reading them. If it were not so, God would have preserved the, the, the chords and the notes to go with it. We'd have the beat. We don't. We have what is sufficient. So they work. You can sing them or you can say them. But the most important thing is that you get it. And so David says, thank you for my Bible, Lord Jesus. That's how it is interpreted by the New Testament. Thank you for the scripture. Have you ever just loved on God's word? Well, if you have, you're going to be tested about that. You're not going to get away with just loving God without confrontation. Spiritual confrontation. Through physical means even. All sorts of ways. All sorts of brands. Satan has an arsenal. And, a, and, and he doesn't mind using it. Have you ever observed a spiritually useful Christian who is not a student of the Bible? Well, let me rephrase that. Have you ever noticed a Christian who serves God wonderfully, but is not a student of the Bible? No. They go together. If you find somebody out there serving, but not sitting at the Word, you have a condition such as with Martha, where she tried to pull Mary away from sitting at the Word. And she said, Lord, help, tell my sister to come help me work without the Word. And what did the Lord say? Mary has chosen this good thing, and it will not be taken from her. Martha learned. She didn't do that again. She likely became more of a student of Scripture herself. Valuable lessons to put into action without waiting for the blessings. Let me wait for God to bless me before I will honor his word with my life. That's backwards. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. You put that light out, I can't see. So, Lord, I want that light turned on. And it took a near fatal mistake in David's life to drive this truth home into his heart so he would almost never forget it. Thank you, Lord. God shows us, you know, as powerful of a believer as David was, he's still going to mess up. Just like you. Just like me. We get it. Get a good sermon, get a good study time, do well for a while, get tripped up again, and repeat the process. But in the end, you're in heaven, and Satan is not. And that's the end. David, in this Old Testament that he was reading, he'd read things like this, for example, from Genesis 14. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tithe of all. This is Abraham and Melchizedek. In Deuteronomy 20, For Yahweh your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. David did not have the scripture that we had. He had the first five books. He had uh, Joshua's writing and a little more. Not much else. And yet, 
He loved what he had. We, we have so much more light concerning Messiah, concerning God. Again, we hear about people say, we hear people say that they're prayer warriors. But David was a praise warrior. I'm attracted to that. Because I find that in Scripture. And I find it very pronounced in the Psalms. In fact, Psalm 119 is a song dedicated to singing about God's Word. Beautiful things in Scripture, difficult things in life. But David, under pressure, thanked God for revitalizing the Word in his own life. I would not be surprised if previous to this song, if you said to David, how are you and the Lord doing these days? I would not be surprised if he said, I'm struggling to find God. But I also would not be surprised if David said, actually, I'm doing pretty good. I love the Lord. I wish I could worship at his tabernacle. I wish things were different, but they're not. But I will worship the Lord. And as you read the Psalms of David, you say, boy, he's got a lot of problems in his life. There are a lot of troubles that David sings about. This is the sweet psalmist. He's got problems like we have, sometimes more. Yet there he is, arms stretched up towards heaven, singing his hallelujahs to the Lord. May we follow such examples and not miss them. Miss them. And so under pressure, he says, in God I have put my trust. And this is born out of his praise for the word, which is recognition for the value of what God says to man. The world pours itself into saying, don't listen to this. Don't do that. Mix it with something else. It's not enough the way it is. You, you cannot just have the word of God. You need the psychologist to tell you how to live. That is a lie straight out of hell. And I reject categorically. Okay, I'm sorry. I said I wouldn't get excited about these things. <laughs> I'm going to keep a little bottle of Visine up here to remember to be monotone when I feel like getting uh, excited. <laughs> I, I personally think behavioral psychology today is to the Christian church what the worshipers of Baal were in the days of David. It's infecting everybody with an alternative to how to live. There is no alternative for the Christian. It is Jesus Christ. You have the words of life. That wasn't just for those guys back then. Any more than thou shalt not kill was for those guys back then. It's for us right now. And there are a lot of people that don't like to hear it in the church. Paul said, because I tell you the truth, am I now therefore your enemy? Do the math. Do the spiritual math. Here is David, isolated from friend and family. Having turned to the wrong people, now learned his lesson. And what does he do? He bolts his trust to God. Is there a Christian that has a problem with that? Is there a Christian that would like to stand up and say, yeah, but you also need. When it comes to how you shall thus live, are you going to take me to another instruction manual? What is the name of it? Five ways to be a happy citizen. Doubting God never adds to our strength. It never adds to our strength. But it can. It can be turned back on the devil because when that, when you feel yourself doubting the Lord, that's a signal to draw closer to him. And that's how we punish the enemy. That's how we strike back. That's how we counterpunch. If you find yourself in a tough fight in life, what are you supposed to do as a Christian? You're supposed to fight spiritually until reinforcements show up. That's why you're supposed to hold on and hold out in faith. And your soul will be revived by the Lord. Psalm 119, verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. God, let your scripture be true to me. You said you promised. Where's the help? God says, it's coming. It'll suffer some. It'll be there. Why do I have to suffer? Because you're not a robot. I don't mind being a robot. I'm telling you, I've told the Lord, you know, I, I don't mind if you just made me a robot and we could skip these things. And God's response is, you will not think that way when you come in 
come before my throne. You will love that I did it this way. You just have to wait. Psalm 119, verse 37. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Put that on your computer, right? But it won't be enough. It won't be enough. You have to fight hard. I'll read that again. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Psalm 119, 107. I am afflicted very much. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. You see, this is a double, a double down of the faith, a recommitment to be strong. Psalm 143, verse 11. Revive me, O Yahweh, for your name's sake, for your righteousness' sake. Bring my soul out of trouble. These psalms that I'm reading, these verses, they're born out of life, out of struggle. Do I commune with Jesus Christ in such a way? Am, am, am I in fellowship with Jesus Christ in such a way? Are we common together enough in such a way that no man can stop me from that communion? Not even myself. Jeremiah exhibits this for us. He gives us a lesson on how to commune with God when you don't want to, when you're tired of God's ways. Jeremiah 20, verse 9. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. Now pause there. If you're pastoring and you've preached and you've made a disaster of a sermon, that's what you're saying to God. I'm not preaching anymore. It's done. Jeremiah goes on. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. That's what it looks like. That's what life in Christ looks like. Jesus is very upfront with us. If a man will deny himself, take up his cross. He didn't say, you know, there's no cross for you. I'll do all the dying. And all you have to do is all the praying and getting blessed. He never tells us something like that. He tells us right away, he says, I send you out there. There's wolves out there, and I'm sending you out there where they are. David writes in this Fourth verse, I will not fear the outcome again of trusting God. David, uh, Paul repeats this in, the, in his letter to the Hebrews. He quotes this section of scripture. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, coming from a lot of people, it doesn't carry much weight. But coming from a man like Paul, the life he lived, it has a lot of weight. I begin to read these scripture verses and I say, I can't do this. And God says, you're right. You cannot do it unless I do it through you. And if I did it for David, I did it for Jeremiah, I did it for Paul and Peter and all the others, I'll do it for you too when the time comes. Many of God's people have had to allow themselves to be put between God and the enemy. Exodus 14, this is when the Jews are escaping Pharaoh's army. Pharaoh is pressing on them. It's just like Satan. He'll let you go, but then he wants you back. And he's going to come at you. And he's going to force you to be his. So it came, it, then, so God sent this cloud, and it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. God put a cloud between the enemy and his people. Because fear, fear can paralyze or it can energize. That's just a fact. You, you know, the fight or flight kind of thing that you may have heard someone say. Fear cannot be ignored. You, you just, you know what, I'm just going to ignore it. <laughs> you, you can't. It's, the light will just keep, the buzzer will just keep going off. It always dangles in uncertainty in front of us and harasses us. But this is the kind of stuff that I say from the pulpit that have to stick with me through the week and I have to go do it myself. And I find it to be a drag. But this is the stuff. Fear always gives us a chance to trust God. Who would have thought? Anytime I'm afraid, I have a chance to trust God. And so the psalmist writes, in God, 
I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. Now, I don't know that David had arrived at that place, that he was that, you know, or this was just his resolve. I'm going to get up again, and I'm going to trust God. I think it's a combination of both. What can flesh do to me? Ah, the flesh. That's how he sums up the deadly might of the foe. What can the enemy do to me? What can the flesh, whether it's the flesh of someone else, my own carnality, whatever is out there, whatever created being that is out of step with God, that is looking to hurt me, what can they do to me if I'm trusting God? Psalm 91, verse 2. I will say of Yahweh, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I will trust. Remember David said in Psalm 59, I don't know if I read it, I believe I did read it, he mentioned, For you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. He wrote that when the assassins came for him and he got away, but then he goes to the enemy for refuge. My point of bringing it up again is this, we do vacillate, we do get knocked around. How about, now, I don't ever want to lose sight of this, because a sermon that keeps encouraging us to be strong in the faith can at the same time make us lose sight of some other things that are very important that could be overlooked, but they're too vital to overlook. And now I'm talking about love. But the love that is kind, be you kind to one another, tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God did in Christ Jesus. That's from Ephesians 4. As I'm drinking up encouragement from God, am I kind to others, especially in the body of Christ? Or do I think that I can get away with it? I I can be mean to Christians, but not to non-Christians. Because the non-Christian will punch me upside my head. But the Christian will just suffer and love me. I hope not. But it's an important reminder to be kind especially when your feelings get hurt. Because we want to retaliate. We want to strike back. We must learn to make Bible study count in life. We must have Satan say in his file about us, this is a Christian that counts. Versus, don't worry about that one. That would be an insult. That's what Paul was saying in And when he wrote to Timothy, Paul is, as far as he is concerned, about to die. In the second letter that he writes to Timothy. He writes about those, he says in 2 Timothy 3 verse 7, that there are those always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Because they don't like it. They think there's an alternate truth out there. They think they can find a better truth. When Jesus said, you two are going to leave, you know, I say things from the pulpit sometimes and it hurts people. I don't intend to do that. But it does. And sometimes I feel very bad when I find out about it. And God has said to me, remember that they said, this is a hard saying. We don't like your teaching. We're leaving. And then Peter, Jesus asked, are you you two going to leave? Jesus says, are you going to go also? Because I'm not going to stop you. Peter said, where else are we going to go? You've got the words of life, the truth. You have the truth. There's no all auxiliary truth. And so when Paul says, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of truth, you meet a lot of people in churches that do that. A lot of people throw around the name of Jesus Christ. They're always learning, but they're never coming into the knowledge. They're always mingling it with something else. The mere fact that David rejoiced in God did not take the pressure from his life. The fact that he was writing songs and singing praises, did not say, oh, God did not say, oh, okay, you really do love me. Let me stop all your problems. It did not happen. Saul, again, still out to kill him. But he realizes afresh, refuge is with God, not with pagans. That God can save him from giants and kings and even from his own carnality but not without a fight. It is David who we remember as the hero of that age, not Saul, not so many of his other enemies, not Absalom. We know the names of his greatest enemies, 
We side against them. We side with David because we recognize the truth that is in his heart. He will live to write more psalms after this one about fears, glorifying God every step of the way. He praises God, this man, and he never takes it back. And he lets you know in his psalms, God is, I cry out to him day and night. I soak my pillow with crying. What delays you? And then he goes on to say, I will praise you nonetheless. And we look at his life and we say, so that's what happens. That's how you do it. That is how you double down on your faith in the face of things that hurt. And there are all types of hurt. He will live to write more psalms. He will live to praise God. I want to do this too. I want to read about this and then I want to get up and go do it. And in the early ages of my Christianity, I thought it was going to be a lot easier than what I found out. But yet, here I am still. Somehow I've made it this far. I know the somehow is in Jesus Christ. I'm kept by the power of Christ. Have you ever preached a Lord Jesus who is completely adequate for an empty life? Have you ever done that? I don't mean it as a new Christian. I mean that you've been around a while. Are you preaching a Jesus Christ that is adequate for everything in life? Or does your, flay, your faith flee in the face of the enemy? Instead of engaging the enemy in the trouble, you run. And by that I mean you abandon God. You look for strength elsewhere. You resent that God has allowed this in your life. You question his love, his care, his sovereignty, his wisdom. At that point, we need to learn to double down in our faith. While being chased. He's still being chased. He's still doubling down. Don't wait to be delivered to praise the Lord. Praise him in the middle of it. God's word is a treasure. Because the word of God is the voice of God. And the voice of God is the mind of God. And the mind of God is the heart of God. It's who he is. That's why in the beginning was the word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father. We're doing that to this day. God's word is a treasure. I know someone who suffered more than anyone that you ever knew and I ever knew. Job. And this is what Job says. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I value God's word more than life. That's what Job was saying. This is deep into his discourse his discourse with the three helpers, the four, counting Elihu. And those men, they meant well in the beginning. The best thing they ever did for Job was shut their mouths for a week. Once they started talking... It was all downhill after that. They had nothing to offer him. All their wisdom was misguided. It's like, that's true, but not of me. Beware of those types. This age that we live in, and I'm almost done, there is a defective breed of professed Christians that are on the increase because they want salvation without correction. You can't have it. The whole thing of the cross. Uh, scriptural commands are not optional. They would be suggestions. And God gave Moses the ten suggestions. God says, it's a good idea thou shalt not steal. It's a good idea that you shouldn't lie. It's a good idea that you shouldn't have any other gods. That would be Satan saying something like that. But this new breed... Not entirely new, but in some ways it is because it has different resources available today. The, the Internet, the, which is Babel, the Tower of Babel, rebuilt, putting the entire world in one place with one language to do the same thing that men want to do without God, which is the story of Babel. But they are voicing and defending, while insisting to be Christian, 
subscriptural views of Christ and his word. How do you do that? By corruption. That's all. You just corrupt and you insist that you're not corrupting while you are corrupting. Subscriptural views mean you disagree with Jesus Christ. And true believers need to be able to identify make believers or fake believers. True religion is demonstrated not only by going to church, but also in worship that is acceptable to God. How do I know what kind of worship is acceptable to God? Through his word. How else can I know? You can't. There is no other way. Anything other than that is guessing. And that's why the apostle says, built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and the apostles and the prophets. And that is very important to us. David took Goliath's sword from the temple where he placed it in the beginning. And he thought he could put it to good use by giving it as a gift. And it almost cost him his life. And realizing how foolish this mistake was, he races back to the word of God. Psalm 56, 13, For you have delivered my soul from death. You have not kept my feet from falling. Uh, pardon me. You have not kept my feet from falling. That I may walk before you in the light of the living. Powerful message from us. You have delivered my soul from death. I'm reading from verse 13 in our text. Uh, you let me slip a little bit. You let me get hurt a little bit to teach me the lessons. Uh, that sword was a battlefield trophy that became a stumbling block. And happy are those who can follow the Lord even in the worst of times. Ephesians six seventeen. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Not the sword of Goliath. The sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You think this suffering is bad? You wait to see the glory God has for you after it's over. This is all the pain you'll ever have. This is the only bite of the sandwich you'll ever have to take. The time is coming, it will be no more. Scriptural courage, Ephesians 6.10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the entire armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And you guys know this. He repeats it three times, Paul does in that section. Stand, stand, stand. Who will get up from God's word? And actually, be further away from him. What fool would get up from God's word and be further away from God? There are some that have, but not the righteous. The righteous come to God's word and we draw closer to God. Well, I can say a lot more things. Okay, I'll say them. No, I'm not kidding too bad David did not have a behavioral psychologist there to give him some ideas on how he could get through these troubles. Uh, you don't need the world to teach you how to live. You need God to teach you how to live. It's a manufacturer issue. He is the creator and the maker. And he is the one that deals with our behavior. And that's why we read all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, that is teaching, how to do right, for reproof, for instruction, for correction. In righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for life. God still speaks what he has spoken. He doesn't take it back. He develops in some areas, but he doesn't take it back. Final verse, Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. To that church that once loved God, was so blessed with great teachers, was still doing so many works, but wasn't loving on the Lord. And he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, 
I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Let's pray. Our Father, I know I want to eat from that tree. I could gorge on it right now. But there is an assignment to be fulfilled. There's a life to be lived. There are fears to face in the faith. A lot of work to be done. And every Christian has been deputized to be part of the work. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it teaches us about your mercy and your kindness, how much grace you have, that you are not looking to judge and rebuke. You're looking to forgive and empower and teach and use us. We thank you for this. If you have been listening to God speak through his word this morning, and you've never opened your heart to him, and you'd like to do so right now, you have an opportunity to do it. Whether you do it or not is up to you. The message and the invitation is so important that week after week it is offered. If you would like to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then all you have to do is come to him on his terms. You have to confess your sins. You have to understand that you have sinned against him. and That he is the only one that can forgive you and he is the only one worthy. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments. And I ask you to forgive me. And I come to you and I bring my life to you. And I ask that from this day forward, you would be not only the one who saves me from judgment, for breaking your word, but also the one who rules over my life. I give you my life, and I ask you to be not only my Savior, but also my Lord. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may they not hesitate to share it when they are invited to. In Jesus' name, amen.